Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Um, today we're going to have four moments in the life of Jesus, and um, these are important texts. So we're going to go from Mark 3, 7 all the way to verse 35. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, uh, Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases passed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, he fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make them known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bo- uh, <laughs> Bonagus, I don't know how to say that, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, and he answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, like I said, today we're going to be covering several moments uh, in the life of Jesus. Uh, And the first two moments can seem underwhelming at first. Like perhaps it's something we read over rather quickly when we're reading through the scriptures. But what's so interesting about texts like these is that I've found that if you dig into the text that you assume that there really isn't much there, you tend to find a lot of meat there. And so I'm pretty excited about these first couple moments. And then the last couple moments that we'll talk about, um, we see some scary and perhaps even confusing moments in the life of Jesus that if we aren't careful with these words, um, then we can misinterpret what is happening here. And so we are going to have to Go kind of slow and be very specific as we jump into these scriptures this morning. Uh, But before we jump into our first couple moments, I want to give a couple clarifications and a couple guardrails about 
the, the word and um, the idea of being a disciple. So that's what we're going to spend. If you want to write in your journal this first couple moments, we're focusing on what it means to be a disciple. So let's talk about being a disciple of Jesus. The 12 apostles, who we will look at in a moment, were not the only disciples of Christ. Okay, that's, it's typically when scripture speaks of the disciples, it is referring to the 12 men we are familiar with, but following Jesus was not limited to just them. And sometimes we have this idea that for the entirety of Jesus' ministry, it was only the 12 disciples that were with him, but that was not the case. There were many who followed and traveled with Jesus. Consider uh, the sending out of the 72 in Luke, right? So we know because of that story that at that moment in time, there was at least 72 followers of Jesus that he would send out. Luke 8 talks specifically about women giving out of their means to the ministry of Jesus and how they were traveling with them. So being a follower of Jesus was not limited to just men. There were women that came alongside Jesus as well. In Acts 1, when Jesus ascends, right, when he ascends into heaven, it says in Acts 1.15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons who was on about 120. So at that point in time, when Jesus ascends into heaven, there was a, probably around 120 people, 120 disciples. And then I don't know if you remember this story. So Jesus Iscariot betrays Jesus. And when their church is beginning, they have to replace him. And um, they want to replace him with someone who had accompanied the disciples and Jesus the entire time. So when they replace Judas, they want to replace him with someone that has been with their ministry the whole time. And they pick two guys, and then they cast lots, and God chooses Matthias. Uh, Matthias. And so all that to say, right, when we think about being a disciple of Jesus, we first have to understand that Jesus had many disciples, not just the twelve. And in these next few moments, we're going to see Jesus define what it means to be a disciple. So that was the first clarification, just thinking about the idea of a disciple. Second, as we journey through this book, you will see that in its simplest form, a disciple is someone who walks with Jesus. But over time, that word disciple takes on a more expansive meaning, right? That there is an intimacy of, there's an intimacy with Jesus by being a disciple. It is an intimate experience. It is not um, disconnected. In the books of, book of Acts, you see that the disciples of Jesus, even though he's not with them physically, they are people who are trying to follow him, and they are people who worship him. Now, there is a temptation for us, and especially for me, to see being a disciple of Jesus as something that is only focused on either education and or morality. Does that make sense? So being a disciple means that I either learn about Jesus or that I just try to live like Jesus. It's about education or morality. That's actually a shallow way to think about being a disciple because it's not just about learning about him, right? It's not just about trying to be moral. To be a disciple at its core is to be a worshiper is to worship Jesus, to fall in love with Jesus, to have your affections stirred by Jesus. It's, it's to 
worship him. And as you go throughout this, as we go throughout this book, you'll see moments where Jesus will, will talk about that idea, or he will put them in a situation that won't just be about education or holiness. It will be about the stirring of the affections. It will be about worshiping God. Now, I wanted to say those things before we jump into the text, because I think those are helpful parameters um, that will, will help us in this text. So verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the big question here that we want to ask is, okay, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And here's the first thing we learn from this text. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, has a lot of fans. I don't mean like fan like the wind blows. I mean fans like at a football game or at a concert. He has a lot of fans, and they're coming from all over. I mean, if, you, if we were to pull up a map, I don't have one, sorry. Uh, if we were to pull up a map, you would see that they're coming, all these cities, it's literally a circle around Jesus. They're coming from everyone. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is a very popular celebrity. And they weren't coming to call him a Lord. They were coming because they wanted to see the spectacle. They wanted to see uh, Jesus heal someone. They wanted to see demons cast out, or they wanted to participate in themselves. If Jesus was here today, we would describe him as viral, right? Like every, there's clips of him doing incredible things. I mean, he is popular at this time. And so when you think about the ministry of Jesus, you have to understand it was chaos. Like it wasn't just Jesus and the disciples off on the side, just chilling, right? It was absolute chaos. There was crowds chasing him down. And the disciples at this point are like bouncers, just trying to keep people away. I mean, look at verse 9. It says, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. I mean, they think the crowd's going to crush him. They're, they're pressing in on him so hard. And here's the deal with fans, okay? Here's the deal with fans, especially cowboy fans. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, here's the deal with fans. Fans are fickle, right? They're fickle. They will drop you and they will boo you the minute that you do something that they don't like. And so we have to understand the difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. One spectates and one worships, right? One is fickle and one is faithful. And we have to be careful that as the church, we are not creating an environment that merely creates fans, that makes fans and doesn't make disciples, where you can simply and casually come and go, never, never get to know anyone or be really be pressed about what you believe about God or what you think about the gospel. He didn't say go into all the world and make fans. He said go into all the world and make disciples. So that's the first thing. It's just, that's just a question for you to ponder. Based on how you would live your life, based on how you think about Jesus, which category would you really fall into? When suffering comes, are you a fan? Are you a disciple? It's a hard question to ask, and it may pull some things out of you that you, didn't want, you don't want to be pulled out. And it may create some hard conversations. But that's important for us to identify. Each as individuals and as a church, are we creating fans of Jesus? Are we creating disciples? worship Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say about being a disciple is being a disciple is more than a confession, okay? 
being a disciple is more than a confession. There are some that might say that being a disciple is to confess that Jesus is Lord, that you would say and confess, hey, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he is the Christ and he is the son of God. And while a disciple must affirm those truths, you can believe all those things and not be a disciple. Why do I say that? Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. What are the unclean spirits doing here? They're confessing. They're confessing. A confession does not make you a disciple. A true saving confession must be more than an affirmation of truth. The unclean spirits confess the truth about Jesus, but they're not called disciple of Jesus. Why? Because there's no real love for him. In fact, there is a dread of Jesus from the unclean spirits. They have no affection for him. There is no submission to him. There is no joy found in him. So we can, on one hand, confess truths about Jesus, right? But on the other, still have a hardness of heart towards him. We can confess that he is Savior, but refuse to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. We can confess that he is sovereign, but refuse to trust him as the sovereign one. So being a fan or a confessor is not a disciple. The third thing I would say about being a disciple is that a disciple is called by Jesus to be a disciple. Look at verse 13. And he went up to the, on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed. So to be a disciple is to be called by Jesus. It says he called to those whom he desired and they came to them, and then he appoints them. And this is an encouragement to us. This is an encouragement to us. And it's something we should remind ourselves of often, especially when suffering comes in, or doubt creeps in, when you have those weeks where you don't understand anything. And it's hard to remember that Jesus has called you. Not only has he called you, but within that, that he has desired you to follow him. And that there is a place for you in the following of Christ. That you can rest in that calling. And that doesn't mean that he's going to drop you. He is committed to you and he is faithful to you. Now, I want us to notice something in this text. Notice that it specifically mentions that he calls 12 of them. Okay, That's not a coincidence here. 12 isn't just some random number. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that, like, Why did Jesus call 12? Why that number? Well, if you were a Jew reading this, there is one thing you would have thought of. Do you know what it is? The 12 tribes of Israel. They believed, and many people believe, and I agree with them, that he is, in this moment, he is ushering forth the new Israel, reflecting back on the 12 tribes of Israel, but one that is not centered on the Torah, It's not centered on the temple. It's not centered on land. But this tribe, this new kingdom, is centered on Jesus himself. If you want to belong to the new Israel, you have to be with Jesus. The last thing I would say about this moment is that Jesus gives these disciples three identifications of what it means to be a disciple. Now, these aren't all a disciple is. As we'll walk through the book, we'll see that. But it does give us three crucial pieces 
of being in disciples. It says in verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So we see three purposes here. First, there is a relational purpose to being a disciple. A disciple is to be with Jesus. And as we walk through the book, we'll see it's about intimacy. It's personal. There's a a real bond and connection with Jesus, right? And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I really know him? Do do I really have an affection for him? Honestly, do, do I really have my affection stirred for the glory of Christ? Do you honestly know about his affection for you? How much he desires you? How he has pursued you? How he has forgiven and freed you in so many ways? Do you really know that and does it have an impact on your soul? It's not that just that they are traveling buddies. That's not what this is. There is something deep and personal with being a disciple of Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is that a disciple proclaims the king in one way or another. This could be teaching formally. It could be conversation. Um, There's many ways that you can proclaim the king, but it's clear that he calls them to proclaim his kingdom, that we are all called to be ministers of the word in some way. And lastly, there is an authority over the spiritual world that is given to a disciple of Jesus. So let me take a second here, because most Westerners have a hard time grasping this concept of the spiritual world. We have uh, made Satan a silly silly little cartoon character, and we don't really know how to think about angels and demons, spiritual warfare, but we have, if I could just say it clearly, there is an enemy that wants to attack, confuse, and blind us from the glory of Christ, from the gospel. And I know for me, there has been times in my life, and I know this, I've had many conversations with many of you about this, that that we just don't know how to think about these things, about spiritual warfare, about demons, about, I mean, half half of this book has been about Jesus casting out demons so far. And so I'm of the belief, look, I've got stories we missed a flight in India because we were at a church service and the pastor had to cast out a demon and we missed our flight. And we were just watching this casting of the demon happen and we were like, what in the world is going on, right? And so I've seen it and I, I could tell you testimonies of stories at Mary Harden Baylor, right? Dark, scary things that are happening. And I'm convinced that many of us aren't aware of the spiritual warfare that is happening around us because we just don't want to be. That, that we have been convinced that it's, it's a cartoon character, that there isn't a real battle happening. And let me tell you, just because we're talking about this, some of you that have never thought about this before, this week will feel it. Because Scripture and the Holy Spirit is exposing the reality of this battle that's happening behind the walls that you have no idea about and that the enemy has been pleased that it's that way, that you aren't aware that there is an enemy that has set his sights on us as the church. And because we're talking about this and looking at the word, that is going to be exposed, and I can almost guarantee that you're going to feel it this week. And it's going to scare you. And it's going to even make you run away, some of us. So I just want you to be aware of that, (laughs) that that is probably going to happen. 
if you really say, man, what does it mean that there is an enemy? What does it? So, so let me say this. When that happens, for those of you that, that are really believing God and his word and the reality of the enemy, when that happened, here's what I want, I want you to remember this text, that he has given you as a disciple authority, his authority, that the enemy has no power in the presence of Jesus. He has given you authority in his name to cast them out. And so when you feel that this week, and, and you know if you felt it, you, you know when the enemy is just attacking you. And, and I'm not one of those people that says, oh, the devil's in everything. No. There are specific ways that he attacks. And so I just want you to remember that you have authority given to you by Jesus over the enemy. And it's in his name, and it's in his power. They tremble at his name. There's a lot more we could say about being a disciple. But we have to go into our last two moments, where are even more intense than this moment. So um, we have Jesus' family and the scribes in these next two moments. And they both agree something's wrong with Jesus, okay? There's something happening here. So we're going to take them one at a time. Uh, so go with me to verse 22. I'm going to read this again just so that we're clear on what's happening here. So I'm going to read it again. Uh, verse 22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. All right, let's take a breath, right? Now, this story is in all three synoptic gospels. So it's an important story. It's an important moment in the life of Jesus. And we have to be careful how we approach this because there may be some of us in this room that have a more sensitive conscience, right? You're sensitive to things like this. And you have a little, maybe even have a little bit of fear right now just by us talking about this. And so let's ask a general question. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? If I utter a curse about God, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Maybe there was a time in your life when you were very angry with God, when you were mad with God. Maybe there was a time in your life when maybe you even thought or taught something that was theologically incorrect. Does that mean that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Maybe you have thought, maybe you think, man, I have done so much harm to myself and I have done so much harm to those around me. Have I in some way blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Now, let me ask that a different way. Let me switch it a little bit. Is it possible to have a genuine repentance of sin, to ask mercy from God, and then re be rejected by God? Is it possible for God to look at a repentant person and say, you have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What do you think? I would say no. 
That's not possible, right? So on the front end of this, let me just say this. The reality that you are here right now, listening to this, and maybe even asking some of those questions, is proof that you probably have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So first thing I want to do is I want to put your fears at rest. However, however, on the other hand, it is my job as pastor, as preacher, whatever you want to call me, to preach the mood of the text. In fact, that's a good principle for anyone who's teaching from Scripture. You always want to match the mood of the text. So what do I mean by that? Um, if, if I took Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He lies me down by green pastures. You know that song? It's a song about the rest and the comfort of God and the glory of God. If I took that psalm and I just started yelling at you, right? And I said, have you allowed the Lord to be your shepherd? You haven't? What's wrong with you, right? And if I just went, oh, you don't let him lie you down in green pastures? Oh, do you hate the grass, right? If I just started berating you about the Lord being your shepherd, and if I say, oh, you don't look forward to dwelling in his house forever, what's your problem, right? Would that be weird? Yeah, that would be weird, right? Because I'm not matching the mood of the text. It's about the comfort and the rest of God. So it would be just as bad if I took a text of warning like this and I just treated it as education, right? Because there is a warning here that we have to look out for, that we have to be aware of. So while on one hand, I do want to assure you to not have fear, on the other, I do want to match the mood of this text and give the warning as Jesus gives the warning, because I think that's right. So um, pray for me as I step on the balance beam here for a second. So here's what I want to do. First, I want to clear up some confusion about this text. It has been widely misunderstood and even weaponized in some circles. And I do want to explain why I think it's highly unlikely that anyone in this room has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Not impossible, because there is a warning here. But then I do want to preach that warning tell you what that warning is about. So let me give you some context. In verse 22, some scribes come to Jesus. And remember, last week we saw that they are no longer investigating Jesus, but they're what? They're accusing him, right? They're going after Jesus. They're looking for ways to accuse him. So they come to, them, come to Jesus, and they are saying to themselves, hey, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, what is Beelzebul? Okay. Beelzebul was one of the Canaanite gods. You may be more familiar with the name Baal, B-A-A-L from the Old Testament, right? You see these names combined in the Old Testament. So for example, 2 Kings 1-2. Um, I think I will have it on the screen as well. It says, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, which I found out this week was in Bohemian Rhapsody. Didn't even know that. Um, so, but Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I recover from this sickness. Now, over time, it just becomes another name for Satan. That's, what, that's all you need to know. It just becomes another name for Satan. He is known as the prince of demons. So the scribes are making two related and overlapping accusations about Jesus. One, he is possessed by the devil, and it is by the power of the devil that he is casting out demons. In fact, one of the common objections to Jesus in the first century that the early church had to deal with was that Jesus was a magician. Not like Harry Potter magician, but like, like a sorcerer. Someone who would conjure up dark 
power and dark spirits to do his beating. That was one of the common beliefs about Jesus in the first century. And Jesus is going to respond with these accus- to these accusations with logic. I love it. Sometimes logic's good, okay? So he says, how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. Here's what he's saying in this text. There are two kingdoms at war here, not just one. There is the kingdom of light, and there is the kingdom of darkness. And he basically is like, why would Satan be attacking himself? Like, come on, bro, think, right? He's like, why would Satan be attacking himself? That would make no sense. And so he responds with logic, and just, he's just like, you're not really thinking this through. Okay, that would make no sense. And then he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man here. Now, the strong man here is the devil, okay? And Jesus equates himself, essentially, as the stronger man who comes in to bind the devil. Now, let me go on a little side trail here. I would argue here that Jesus is referring to the binding of Satan that is coming pretty soon through the work of the cross. And here's why I would say that. There is a text in Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, we're not going to go fully into it, but depending on which eschatological view you hold, which is the study of the end times, it would determine how you interpret that text. Like I said, I'm not going to go into them, but I am of the belief that, it is, that this binding of Satan is occurring now in the present age, post the death and resurrection of Christ. And the thousand years is a way of saying a really, really long time. So I would say that the death and resurrection of Christ has, so this is important, has bound Satan in this age so that the work of Christ can go forward into the world. Does that make sense? So Satan has been bound. He hasn't been fully defeated, right? He, he still has an impact, but he has been chained so that the work of Christ can go forward in this world. Now, I say that because in John 16, 11, when Jesus is talking about going away, he says, hey, I'm going to send a helper. And he gives us three things that the helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to do among us. And one of them, he said, is that the Holy Spirit will judge. And specifically, the Holy Spirit will judge Satan. So in John 16, 11, he says about the Holy Spirit concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Doesn't mean that he's completely absent, but there was a decisive blow on the cross of Christ towards Satan. He has been bound by our God. Doesn't mean that he's absent, but he has been bound so the gospel can go forward into the world. Now, it's in that context that Jesus then says, look, all blasphemies they utter, they'll be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, to be clear here, I don't think he's looking at the scribes and he's saying, hey, you are condemned forever. Right? I do think the, he's saying, you're on, I think he's saying you're on the verge of committing a very deep and serious sin. You are dangerously close to doing this. So let me ask the question again. What exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's actually much simpler than we think. 
Verse 30 gives some helpful context here. He says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So they were claiming that Jesus was working by the power of the devil. So in its most narrow and historical terms, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute the spirit-empowered work of Jesus to Satan. They were slandering the spirit. That's a simple definition. Now, a more broad definition, and I'll say this twice, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a conscious, clear, consistent refusal and intentional accusation about Christ. Let me say that again. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a conscious, clear, consistent refusal and intentional accusation about Christ. So it was a conscious decision. It was not ignorant. They knew what they were accusing Jesus of. It's clear. It's a definite assessment that what is good is evil. It's consistent. It's not a mistake or a lapse in judgment. It's not like, oops, did I just blaspheme the Holy Spirit? No. (laughs) It's consistent. It's a refusal. It's a rejection and a denial of the work of Christ. And here's the deal. The scribes, they didn't deny Jesus' miracles. They knew that what he was doing was a miracle. It was not normal. And they chose to attribute that work to Satan. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unwavering resolve to oppose Christ and explain his power by attributing it to the devil. Does that make sense? One thing I would add to this, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because those who commit the sin never come to Christ for repentance and forgiveness. They never come to Christ for repentance and forgiveness. It's it's not like this sin is a one and done. Oops, my bad, hell forever. That doesn't happen, right? It's a disposition of the will. You cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit accidentally. Oh, yesterday when I said that, oh, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. No, 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 that's not possible. It's a disposition in your soul. It's deliberate and consistent. So to be clear, if you're worried that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that is in itself proof that you have not. Does that make sense? So the very fact that you would have that concern is proof that you do not have a conscious, clear, consistent refusal of accusing Christ, right? So if you are someone who struggles with this idea or or someone who you might counsel in the future comes up to you and talks about this, you can assure them that the very fact that you are concerned is proof that you have not done this. So I would say that it's extremely unlikely that anyone in this room has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I think if they did, it would be obvious. However, and here's where it's necessary to match the mood and give the warning, at the core of this whole thing is rejection. At the core of this whole thing is, re- is rejection. If one continues and their rejection of Christ, then that person will not find salvation. Does that make sense? If you continue in your rejection of Christ, there will not be forgiveness for you. And it, it pains me to even have to say that. And it, as the church, it, the reality that, that that is a reality should drive us to our knees in prayer for this world. That there is a rejection of Christ in people in this city, in the world. There are unreached around the world who have no idea. And we as the church must pray and, and be worshipers of Christ in this world as 
disciples because there are many who will continue and continue and continue to reject Christ. Which means that at the end of all things, there will be judgment for them. There will be judgment for all of us. But for those who come to Christ, there is the blood of Christ that covers me, covers us, and there is justice done there. But for those who continue to reject Christ, his blood is not for them. And so we, this must matter to us as the church. This has to matter. We have to care. It can't be casual playing games here. There is a world that desperately needs the blood of Christ. And they need to know him. And we as the church have been called to go as disciples into that world. Let me talk about our last moment real quick. Um, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. Um, and they're seeking him out. And Jesus' response to them is surprising. And this, uh, this is going to tie up our whole section here. And, and we'll find our big theme. But uh, let me just read it. Verse 31, it says, His mothers and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and brothers? (laughs) And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. So first, let let me say, this text is not an anti-family text, okay? There are other portions of the Gospels where Jesus talks about things like marriage between being between one man and and one woman, uh, part, uh, where Jesus, Jesus submits to his parents as a child. There are parts where God talks about children being part of the kingdom of God. So there are many moments in the Gospels where Jesus will affirm the idea of the biological family. So this isn't so much about Jesus being anti-family as much as it is Jesus expanding our understanding of what family is. So let me tell you a personal story. I don't do a lot of these, but let me tell you a personal story. Um, when I was a teenager... God really grabbed hold of my heart. I was the only believer in my family, did not grow up in a Christian home, and um, got saved, and God just turned my world upside down as a teenager. I mean, I was devouring Scripture. I couldn't get enough of it, and I yearn for those days uh, today. I yearn for those days where all I want to do is, man, I just want to know Him. I just want to know Him. And that was the season I was in in life. And it came time uh, for me to be baptized. I was going to First Baptist Church of Cuero, Texas, home of the Fighting Gobblers uh, in South Texas. And uh, they just won, like, best mascot in the world, by the way. I don't know. Anyways, uh, and so I was going to First Baptist Church of Cuero, and I remember this very vividly. Um, my dad was cooking in the kitchen. My, my door was, like, right, my room was, like, right next to the kitchen. And I remember, okay, I'm going to go talk to my dad uh, about baptism. So I walked out of my room. I walked to the kitchen. I said, hey. Dad, I just want you to let you know I'm getting baptized next Sunday. I would love for you to come. And his response was, oh, well, you're just jumping right into this Baptist thing, huh? And I was like, okay, got my answer. And I was, I mean, that, that hit me. I was like, my dad just not get it. And there will, will like, what does, this, what does this mean for this relationship? It became very real for me about where our relationship was, was headed. And I went over to our um, small group leader's house, this couple that had basically adopted me and made me part of their family. They were leading the, the small group and the youth group. And uh, I told them what happened, and I'll never forget this. They opened this text, and they said, your dad will always be your dad, and you will always be his son. But now, because of Christ, you're part of our family too. 
And the mom looked at me and she said, I'm your mother. And the dad said, I'm your father. And I went to high school with their kids. They said, they're your sisters. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. That this right here, it's about expanding the family of God. That in this room, there are mothers, there are fathers, there are brothers, there are sisters. That we, because of Christ, are united by nothing else except the blood of Christ and the grace of Christ. We're not united by money. We're not united by socioeconomic status. We're not united by career. We're not even united by hobbies. We are united by Christ. Now let me say a couple things about this text. Um, Because Jesus will talk about this language, which is hard for us to grab. He will say things like in Matthew 10.37, where he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own wife cannot be my disciple. And so let me just say a couple things uh, about the family. Be very careful, be very careful that family has not become an idol for you. That family has not become your idol. And I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna guilt you into thinking something that maybe isn't true. So I would just encourage you to, to maybe talk about that with your family. Like, ask the question: um, Have we replaced worship of the family or worship of Christ with worship of the family? And ask questions like: How what drives our schedule? What kids' activities? Um, your own desires? Like, what drives you as a family? Is it worship of Christ or is it worship of the family? And that's going to be a hard conversation, I imagine, for every single one of us. Because it's, it's not a bad thing to love your family. You're, you're fathers and mothers, and you have to raise your kids up, and your brothers and sisters. I mean, you, you, you need to love your family, but be very careful that you are not making family an idol above Christ. It's going to be so much better for your family if Christ is your worship. You will love one another better. Does that make sense? So be very careful that you're not making family an idol. Um, The second thing I would say here is that if you feel alone in this place, I know what that feeling's like. I've been there. If you feel alone, there is a family here that loves you. And there's this weird balance, right? Because it's a weird thing for the church to talk about being family with each other. When most of us in this room don't really know each other that well, right? So it's a weird thing when you talk about community. But here's my encouragement to you. Here's my encouragement to you. Be patient with one another and really be intentional with getting to know each other. Doesn't matter the age, old to young, right? Be intentional about getting to know one another because it's these relationships, because of the binding that we have in Christ, that will shape you more than any other thing in life. It's school, podcasts, other advisors that you might find. Fox News, CNN, it's, it's not them. It's this group of people that will, God will use to mold you for the rest of your life because there is a binding here that we have that they don't have with us, and that is a commitment over everything else to Christ's work and to who he is. Does that make sense? Let me just close by pointing out the, the, the big macro theme of this entire text, right? Um, whether, whether it is the disciples, scribes, or Jesus' own family, there is a consistent theme here. Jesus is saying, if you want to find the purpose of life, 
It is in complete devotion and surrender to me. And if you reject me, this is the theme, if you reject me, you have to know that at the end of all things, I will reject you. But if you'll come to me, you'll see my desire for you, my pursuit of you. If you'll come to me, you will find a place that you belong. Fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters, you will find why I have created you. I think that's the point of this text. So I hope that we will think on those things and let God work on those things as we worship in a second, as we go to home group this week. We will consider what it means to be part of the family of God and to be fully surrendered to God.